Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. So the idea of using the right question, the right methods, the right partners at the right time, and seemingly pulling that together is the discipline of innovation. That's the discipline that we often are missing that keeps our scientific findings in this valley of death that never gets implemented. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Today, we're talking about driving safety, a critical health issue for adolescents. Tragically, motor vehicle crashes are the leading cause of adolescent mortality and injury in the United States, with new, inexperienced drivers at particular risk. Traditional forms of driver's education and assessment leave out important skills, so today we're going to talk about a novel approach, one that employs simulations of scenarios that can lead to deadly crashes. I'll be talking with Drs. Flora Winston and Elizabeth Walsh from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Winston is a pediatrician who also has a PhD in bioengineering. Dr. Walsh has a PhD in cognitive neuroscience. They are authors, along with two additional co-authors, of a paper that appears in the October 2020 issue of Health Affairs. Dr. Winston, Dr. Walsh, welcome to the program. So when most people think about children's health policy, they think about immunizations or maybe hearing or vision screening. Your paper is about driver safety. Why is that such an important topic for us to cover in an issue of health affairs where we're focused on children's health? Well, as a pediatrician, prevention is really my soul. That's what I care a lot about. And when you think about adolescents, the leading health risk for them in terms of mortality and acquired morbidity is actually motor vehicle crashes. So in the United States in 2018, one out of every five deaths to 16 to 19 year olds was from a motor vehicle crash. And we're so grateful that you included this paper because the risk is under-recognized in healthcare. Um, And when children are a lot younger, the pediatricians think about child safety seats, but as the child gets older, we tend not to really think about driving. And in fact, the peak risk for crashes occurs immediately after obtaining a license. So I think that the really important point is that as we as clinicians are thinking about this, that point zero is the time of licensure. And it's at this point where we should be thinking about what do we do before then to prepare our drivers so that they can be safe? And what do we do after? And this is all of us. It's the families, the schools, the pediatricians, the states need to focus on this and really make a difference so that we can save some lives. Well, uh, you know, just this week, I actually took my oldest daughter in to get her learner's permit. And uh, so uh, I'm quite attentive to this topic. Here in Virginia, where I live, we have graduated licenses, which I've known about for a while, right? You, when you first get your permit, you have to have an adult who's licensed and there are limits in what times you can drive and all of those kinds of things. And then you gain experience and you get more opportunities. Now, I have always assumed that that was based on evidence regarding what you said, the likelihood of accidents among new drivers. But it sounds like maybe that's not enough to assure safety. So why isn't graduated licensure a sufficient solution to the early years of driving problem? Alan, congratulations on this important milestone for your daughter and for you. It's very exciting. And, you know, adolescents tend to not think that they need us, but this is a time where they really, really need you. And while graduated driver licensing is definitely evidence-based, strong evidence, and it's a foundational policy for young driver safety, we still have adolescents dying. The crash rates are incredibly high. 
four times um, more likely to have a fatal car crash right after your license than you are as an adult. Um, the, the first months of licensure are really um, the highest risk for young drivers. And what has been really eye-opening for me in the research that we've done is that these crashes are largely due to a lack of skills and inexperience combined with distraction. So even with graduated driver licensing phases that stretch out and expose teens and young adults to increasingly complex conditions over time, if they don't know how to drive, they don't know how to drive. So in other words, if the teen doesn't spend a lot of time learning and practicing safe driving skills and learning the right skills in a wide variety of settings, they won't be prepared to avoid crashes regardless of GDL. So there are skills they're missing in the traditional driver's education approach that you don't want them to learn on the road because these are life-threatening situations. So what is it that needs to be added to the traditional educational approach to driver's ed? Yeah, I do think they need to be learned on the road, but I think it needs to be deliberate practice. Just like if you're trying to teach your child math or you're trying to teach your child football or anything else, you don't just lockstep do the same thing over and over again, regardless of whether they've gotten that skill. Um, you, you try to figure out where are their deficits and you use deliberate practice to get that. So if the child's not good at keeping a following distance, if the child isn't good at, or the teen isn't good at scanning, or if they're not good at making left turns, that's what you focus on. If they're not good at um, merging into traffic, if you taught them in the summer when you didn't have any ice and now it's icy, then that's another time what you do. So you really have to think about this as a period of time from, actually, to be honest, from the time they start watching you drive when they're in a forward-facing car seat, all the way through where you're giving them guidance, you're talking through it. And then when they're actually starting to drive, that's when you can start really building strong skills. And that's, it's not like, it's just like any other complex skill. And I think that we just don't think about it as enough as adults because it's kind of second nature for us to drive. But when you're first starting to drive, it's not second nature. It's actually really quite difficult. So your paper describes this novel approach that uh, you tried in Ohio. Uh, why don't you just give us a thumbnail sketch and then I'll go a little deeper probably into a few of the elements. But what was that approach? Well, so one of the key parts here is that we didn't really have a good diagnostic tool. When you think about for asthma, we have spirometry, for heart disease, we have the exercise stress test. But when it came to driving, we really did not have a good assessment to see where the strengths and deficits were so that we can really guide that deliberate practice. And so over a long period of time, we developed and validated a simulated driving assessment. So using simulators in a different kind of way, it's not to train someone how to drive, it's to really be able to put them safely and reliably into serious crash scenarios, potentially, and see how they perform. So do they slow down at the right way? Do they um, detect a hazard? Do they, if they see a ball coming into the road, do they know that a child might be following after that? Do they stop completely at stop signs? all those kinds of things. How do they handle intersections? These are all things that you can test reliably, consistently, and safely within a simulator. 
And so that's really basically what we did is we created a diagnostic test. Now, when I think about when I got my driver's license, which given the age of my teenager, you can tell was a while ago, uh, we did have a test. We went out on the road with a person from the Department of Motor Vehicles, and I had to make left turns, and I had to follow at the appropriate distance. So what's different about this diagnosis? Well, I think that the on-road exam is necessary but insufficient um, because you are never going to be in situations that are potential crash scenarios, or you hope you'll never be, because not only would that put the evaluator at risk, it just wouldn't be feasible to have that kind of situation. So basically what happens is it's a relatively short test that they have um, with the driving test and it's controlled. You know, you might get on the road a little bit, but it's not gonna be in heavy traffic. California at one point had you going on the highway. They don't have that anymore. And so it doesn't really test your ability to, the skills you need to avoid crashes. When we think about driving, there are various levels. There are operational skills, like can you parallel park? Can you drive smoothly? Can you stay straight in the lane? And then there are more tactical skills, which are, oh, I see that hazard. What should I do? And then there are um, other skills that are more about planning. And so they're like thinking, oh, I'm about to go out on an icy road. Is that a good thing to do? When do I do it? So there's the hierarchy of higher order thinking skills that become more and more complex and are things that have to change in the moment. And you can't test that on the road. You just can't with a 15 minute test, but in a simulator you can. So imagine getting in this simulator and it's like a video game, right? The ball comes coming, rolling out from between cars and I turn, you know, I navigate my way around and I turn the corner and someone slams on their brakes in front of me. Um, is that kind of what we're describing here? Like a series of very severe situations where something really bad could happen if I make the wrong choice? No, it's not a gotcha video game, because if it were, it would not be reflective of your real driving. Well, that was going to be my next question, which is if I'm expecting a ball to come out, then I'm looking for the ball. And then when you're driving, that's not what you're expecting. What is so wonderful about the approach that we took is that it's really grounded in real crash scenarios. We looked at um, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's um, databases, and we identified that 40% of crashes, um, they're just five scenarios. And so once we figured out that those were the key scenarios and we started working backwards to what are the skills that were necessary, we could piece those together in a really relatively normal drive. In fact, we have 10 versions of it. And so if you're a good driver, and a lot of the teens are, a lot of the young drivers are good drivers, if you're a good driver, you're gonna go through this and not even notice that you're doing anything. If you think about when you just drove in maybe today, or I don't know, I don't, I don't even know if I'm driving anywhere right now, but if you did drive or the last time you drove in March, um, what you might think is that if you go backwards, you'll realize, oh, right, there was, there was a playground that I went past. And there, was, um, there were people walking through a crosswalk. And yes, there was an ambulance and there was a this and there was a, you know, that happens typically on a drive. And so what we just did is instead of having very long intervening segments between those, we just brought those a little closer together. So there's no gotchas. Anybody who drives well can drive this without making any errors or very few. 
and you don't even know if you've been in a crash. Wait, you don't even know if you've been in a crash? No. Explain that to me. We don't make any noises like you've been in a crash. So if it so actually- you're assessing the skill and the response, but even if I respond badly, it's not like game over, yep. sorry, nope. put another quarter in if you want to play again. Not at all. Mm -mm. Okay. Yeah, it's just, in fact, very quickly, you can see from people by their stance, they get comfortable and all that, and they're just driving, you know, they're just, they're just out for a drive, and it's beautiful, and they, you know, look at the scenery, and they got their headset on, and they just drive, but it is, it's not intended to be fast and crazy driving, it's just intended to be a drive in the city and around the neighborhood, um, and just like normal, things happen, but they're not crazy things. So we're a research journal and you've described this incredible intervention, but let's move a little bit more to the analytic side. You, you implemented a pilot. Um, how did that come into being? How did you assess whether or not the pilot was doing what you had hoped it would do? Yeah. So first off, we want to give credit to Ohio leadership. They really recognized the problem of young driver crashes and prioritized it. And they also realized that their existing tests could be improved. So they saw that simulation or simulated driving was a way to increase the effectiveness of the current testing. And in turn, the legislature approved funding to explore its use as part of the licensing process and for safety screening. After a competitive application process, we were selected to enter into this unique health transportation partnership with Ohio to implement the virtual driving assessment tool in the licensing test centers there. So the long-term goal really of the partnership is to improve young driver safety by identifying and mitigating skill deficits associated with crashes. But as a first step for this pilot, the virtual driving assessment was given to thousands of licensed applicants right before they took their on-road driving test. And so the goal was to confirm that the virtual driving assessment could accurately identify the drivers who were going to go on to fail the on-road exam. Um, based on the first 4,643 people who took the driving, uh, virtual driving assessment before the on-road exam, we found that the technology was actually valid and acceptable and feasible in this licensing workflow. So nearly all of the applicants who were predicted to fail the virtual driving test um, or predicted to fail based on the virtual driving test went on then to fail the on-road exam. And when we asked, the applicants reported that they found it realistic and representative of their driving in the real world. And the licensing staff also experienced no technical challenges or disruptions to the busy licensing workflow. So based on these results, the partnership really saw the added value of the virtual driving assessment. Um, and they've also see how it could be beneficial to add it to the driver training workflows in driving schools. And they're considering also adding it to the juvenile justice system. So all of that sounds like a great pilot, but it leaves me with this one question, which is if the outcome you were correlating with was failing the test, why isn't the test good enough in and of itself? How do you know this isn't just replicating what you would learn from someone who fails the driving test? Do you want to go, Liz, or you want me to do that one? <laughs> Either one. I guess that you bring up a good point of, you know, is the on-road examination the gold standard, right? Um, and so I think as right now, it's what is being used. So we had to at first, a first step, at least show that this test can perform the same way that the on-road exam does. 
But there's a lot more potential with the simulated assessment to go beyond that. And actually, an, an important next step in our research is going to be seeing how do people perform on the virtual assessment and if that can predict who crashes after they get a license. So even if you pass the honor exam, and we know that young drivers are going and then crashing in the first two months and six months after their license. Well, what if we could predict that based on the virtual driving assessment performance that they took at the time of licensure? Yeah, so a little bit more I wanted to say there was about the staged approach that we're taking. So we started with this proof of concept um, where the intellectual property we had with diagnostic driving was spun out um, with the, the intellectual property was transferred to Diagnostic Driving, a spin-out company from the Children's Hospital. And they transformed this into a commercial-grade, low-cost proof of concept. And so we needed to then get the trust of our key stakeholders, who were the Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicles and the Ohio Traffic Safety Office. And so they helped us determine what was the first step. And that first step was being able to identify the drivers who were likely to fail their on-road exam. So as you're starting to take something out of the lab and get it into the field, you have to think about what matters to the people in the field. And so in this case, we needed to use the driving test to most importantly identify people who are going to fail because that would be useful to them. Not only is that dangerous if they get in a car with somebody who doesn't know how to drive, but it also is a waste of time. And so we co-designed the testing pro protocols, the outcome metrics, we did a user acceptance test, and then we did the pilot test. But it's with this firm foundation in something they're very comfortable with that you're like, okay, I get it. This really does have something to do with on-road testing that we could then go where we really wanted to go, which was to take it to schools, to, um, to other places. And, and then most importantly, start to do the next level, which this test can identify where your skill deficits are for each of those um, hazardous scenarios and can provide very clear guidance on the deliberate training and practice you need and how you can, how you can fix this. We have a, um, a large website that was part of a randomized trial that has over 40 videos that, um, that families can use to begin to start looking at some of these critical skill deficits and what they can do to practice better. And so again, that's where we were headed, but it wasn't where you start. You have to start where the people are. And really this worked so well that we got the highest endorsement you could get in a press conference with a governor that was so happy with the results that he announced the, the expansion across the entire state into the driving schools. Well, we're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back. Before hitting the floors of Congress, health policy begins in the pages of Health Affairs. Stay up to date with the latest research and insights by subscribing to the leading peer-reviewed health policy journal today. As a nonpartisan forum, Health Affairs addresses today's leading issues in healthcare. Look at the articles from our October issue. Janet Curry explains why the U.S. underinvests in child health, while Dolores Acevedo-Garcia explores community-level health equity opportunity gaps. By subscribing, not only do you have access to more than 30 years of health affairs back catalog, but also access to a head of print articles. Subscribe by visiting our website at www.healthaffairs.org. COVID-19 has reshaped American life for 2020 and beyond. Much remains uncertain months into the pandemic. Along the way, Health Affairs has published research and perspectives on the novel coronavirus. 
Our free COVID-19 Resource Center collects blogs and fast-track journal articles, so you never miss the latest perspective from the health policy community. Highlights include an audio series from NYC Health and Hospitals on their early response efforts. Visit healthaffairs.org COVID-19 to stay up to date. And we're back. So rethinking driver's education isn't something most of us think about every day. What got you interested in this topic? Yeah, so we really, like the primary focus is that we want to see a reduction in young driver crashes. Um, and our team really has zeroed in on the fact that most novice young driver crashes are due to driver errors. Um, so specifically, young driver crashes seem to be related to inadequate skills, insufficient experience, combined with distraction, um, rather than recklessness or impairment, which is sometimes assumed with adolescents. But these driver errors we know are preventable. So this provides us an opportunity to improve driver training to ensure that young novice drivers have the safety skills they need to avoid crashes. And in Ohio, we can not only provide automated and personalized feedback to drivers in the licensing centers, but we can also prioritize the training and the practice needs of the student as part of the extended partnership with the driving schools there. And just personally, as a cognitive neuroscientist, I know that learning to drive and the complex task of avoiding crashes taxes specific brain functions that are actually still developing through adolescence. And in addition, my recent research points to the fact that variability in cognitive development, specifically working memory abilities, is associated with crashes in young drivers. So there is variability in how people develop and what puts them at risk. So these findings call for the more individualized approach and assessment and training in order to identify young drivers at greater risk for crashes and also to deliver those targeted interventions to help them stay safe on the road. And for me, it's like really exciting to work as a neuroscientist, but in a more applied area where there's a real problem or health risk for adolescents um, and getting to work with pediatricians and scientists like Dr. Winston and the rest of our team are all focused on finding ways to reduce young driver crashes. Well, that leads to my next question, which is uh, we're thrilled that you published in Health Affairs, but the goal here really is to change practice, to change the world. And most people wait many years between the time that they do their research and when they see it uh, play out in the real world. You're focused already on implementation. How did you make that transition so quickly? Yeah, well, My colleagues and I at the Center for Injury Research and Prevention at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia have always had an eye focused on the children, youth, and young adults. We just create the data that can drive the action. So we call it research to action to impact. And to achieve this, we developed a model for partnership decades ago, um, which involved identifying who are the key stakeholders, who are the decision makers, who are the influencers. Let's get them involved early, early, early in our research, help us design the right questions so that when we have the results, it's a more seamless transition. This is true in innovation, it's true in adoption anywhere. And so what happened where this all started is that I had found the first cases of children who died from airbags and I worked with government, I'm an engineer by training, And I worked with government and industry, um, and we figured out what the mechanism of injuries were. And the strong science guided our partners' actions, policy programs, regulations, new testing protocols, improved products, and we eradicated that cause of death. So we've always realized that our science and our results alone will not save a life at all, right? I mean, we're not where the rubber meets the road. It's the people who are out there, our partners, who I value more than 
sometimes my even my colleagues is that they're the ones who are actually saving lives. Um, and then the other thing is to understand the limits of, of what we can do in an academic institution. And so I was really proud of Children's Hospital Philadelphia for investing in this and spinning, spinning the company out, diagnostic driving, because the, you know, there is this really important issue with nonprofit academic institutions that they need to do business activities that are related to their core purpose. And virtual driving assessments is not the core purpose of a, a children's hospital, especially as part of licensing. And then secondarily, they needed to be able to focus on commercializing this and getting it cost effective. That's not something that's um, scientifically going to be published in lots and lots of um, journals. So the idea of using the right question, the right methods, the right partners at the right time, and seemingly pulling that together is the discipline of innovation. That's the discipline that we often are missing that keeps our scientific findings in this valley of death that never gets implemented. But if we can work together from the very beginning of having a goal of saving lives as our compass, you know, and the, the, the due north on the compass, then we can all work together and have our role in making a difference and move things away together further and faster. That's incredible advice to uh, someone entering the field and who to look for to work with uh, who, who has understood and embraced those lessons. That's terrific. So like so many other things, unfortunately, these days, COVID-19 seems to have interrupted the application of your work that you were in the middle of. Can you just explain a little bit about what happened here? Yeah, so there are a lot of ripple effects from COVID-19. Um, we're just hearing about them and finding them. And this is one that I think probably you as a parent of a new driver and the first child going through driver licensing may not know is that the motor vehicle testing facilities across the country were shut down due to challenges with social distancing and other issues with COVID-19. And while this could have been an ideal use case for a virtual driving assessment, because it's completely self-guided and um, you know, it could have been that there was such an enormous backlog created by the cancellation of testing appointments that it made it difficult for the administrators to adopt something new. So unbeknownst to many people, what the states did instead is adopt a variety of strategies that really simplified the road test from something that was already quite simple. So um, they really resulted in less opportunities for examiners to assess these driving skills needed for safety. And one of the most common is something called a modified driving exam that involves observing, sometimes from a distance, not even in the vehicle, the applicant performed driving operations like parallel parking in a parking lot, and that's it. There actually were some tests, some states that even tried to just waive the test altogether. And this really concerns me because, you know, while the road safety, the road test may not be the panacea for this, it really is the only gate between being a learner who's being supervised by parents and an independent driver. And our previous work has shown that families just think that having a license really means that you know how to drive, right? So I appreciate the challenges with the COVID-19 presented, but I also worry that we've now transferred one safety risk to another. So we've maybe are safer related to COVID, but our adolescents could possibly be less safe 
when they're being put out on the road without having the assurance of adequate skills. So good news is that I've heard from some administrators that the backlog is now over. They've caught up. Um, and there's renewed interest in considering the use of this test as a complement or replacement to the road test. But the challenges of 2020 are still there. Um, there's a critical need, but you know people are burnt out and the money, it will not necessarily be there to do innovative things. I just really hope that, that we put adolescents first and make sure that their safety is something that we find um, really worthy of our investment. So taking a slightly different dimension, I know a lot of the work at your institution is focused on racial and ethnic disparities that exist in the communities you serve. I do wonder if in this work you identified disparities in pass rates or if you identified tools or resources to reduce those, or was that not a part of this work? Um, Yeah, I guess like the first thing to note about the virtual driving assessment is that it really is agnostic to any driver characteristics such as age or sex or racial and ethnicity factors. Um, The test is really just administered. You don't input who you are, what, you know, what age you are or anything like that to the test when you sit down at the kiosk. Um, And the test predicted the road test results purely based on the virtual driving test performance. So it's purely based on how you perform in the driving scenarios. And we're now conducting research to understand why there are disparities in driving skill performance on the virtual driving test. And this, I think, will be important for future work that's going to then try and explain disparities in crash rates. Um, But that isn't work that we've done yet so far. But it sounds like it's uh, on your horizon. That's very interesting. Well, look, as a parent and as an editor, I listen to you. It's very compelling. And I think... uh, why aren't we doing this everywhere? And uh, how do I sign up? How do I sign my daughter up? Um, Of course, implementation and adoption of this isn't so simple. So um, you mentioned some of the challenges under COVID, but even before that, clearly there's uh, more going on that can be a barrier. Uh, What can you tell us about what it takes to have a, an environment that's likely to adopt this sort of innovation and what the barriers are to adoption when it doesn't occur? Well, I, I think, you know, the challenge right now is uh, any change to status quo, uh, typical licensure, and adoption of innovation of any kind starts with overcoming inertia and the desire to just stay where we are. There are systems in place that would need to be changed, hardware, hardware that has to be procured, rules that need to be revised and a public that needs to be brought along. That's where you come in as a public because you and pediatricians and families should be demanding that adolescents are safer when they get on the road. This is something that you should be demanding just like you demand other things for your adolescents. But this only can happen though if there's strong leadership that acknowledges the value of our adolescents and the persistent and large problem of young driver deaths and persuasively calls for action. There are all kinds of things that can be overcome relatively easily with this if there's someone there who says that this is what we wanna focus on among competing priorities. But unfortunately, too many leaders and parents still think motor vehicle crashes, even fatal ones, ah, it's part of adolescence, it's inevitable, it's, it's, uh, it's unavoidable. It's kind of how we used to think about disease. And so we started thinking about with once 
vaccines came along, that diseases were largely preventable. And if there was um, a, a vaccine related, if there was a, a disease that could have been prevented by vaccine, we call that a prevention failure. We need to be seeing that as well with crashes. These are largely preventable. And if a child dies or an adolescent dies in a motor vehicle crash or grandma dies because an adolescent hit her car, that is something that we should be upset about and want to change. We hope that Ohio as a model is going to set the precedent for states, including my own, our own Pennsylvania, which paid for a lot of the foundational research, but still hasn't adopted it. And if that happens, this change will happen slowly and systematically because every state is going to have to go through these processes. So that's really, I think we have to continue to work together to prioritize adolescence, prioritize child health, and overcome the barriers. So I'm struck uh, that when a crash like this occurs, particularly if there's a death, it is jarring to the entire community. And it really does seem, and it gets a lot of attention, it does seem like that would be a teachable moment, if you will, for the community about the origins of this and to move it away from some sense of inevitability or potentially a, an incorrect diagnosis. So I'm a parent. Uh, if I wanted to try to make this happen, what would I do? Well, there are a few things. The first thing to make this happen in particular, I would think, is to actually talk to your Department of Transportation or Motor Vehicle Administration, I'm not sure what it's called in Virginia, and let them know that you want to be sure that your adolescent has the skills that he or she, she, I think it was she, needs to, um, to drive safely and that you would like them to be um, taking this seriously. And what do, you, what do they need in order to change this? We'd be happy to do a demo or whatever you'd like. But as a parent, I think all of this starts at home. You need to prioritize with your daughter, with your daughter's friends, with all of them, that teen driving is a responsibility, that we're not restricting their driving, but we're gradually increasing their privileges over time as they show experience and maturity and the skills that they need to drive safely. We have lots of resources that families can use on our website that we can share with you. But on a broader level, the teens need to advocate, the parents need to advocate, and you need to say, we demand safer young drivers. We want to see reductions in young driver crash rates because we can't lose another wonderful youngster to this devastating end or disability. They're our future. Well, I've learned so much from your paper and even more from this conversation. Uh, you bring this uh, very important and complex topic to life, and it's, uh, it's been my privilege to spend some time with you. So. Thank you for uh, this, the, the, your contribution to the field and to my own understanding. It's, uh, I'm very grateful. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you, yes, thank you. Liz. And I'm, I just am so grateful to Ohio for having this vision to move this forward. A Health Podacy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. Jeff Byers produces the show under the direction of Patty Sweet. Brian Dobbs edits the show. Sue Ducat and Sarah Kolk help dot the I's and cross the T's with scheduling. Julia Vivalo produced the artwork. Music by Brian Dobbs and Julia Vivalo. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Thanks for listening and have a great morning, day, or evening.